Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Survivors of the crisis of infinite. Survivors on the end. I can't even say it. Survivors of the crisis on infinite earths. Welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That right there is the DC loving Superman flying (laughs) Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's Paul Kupperberg, isn't it? It is, man. And he comes on and talks with Casey about his long history of writing with DC and things like Doom Patrol and Aquaman, as well as his illustrated guide to writing comic book, which is out on Amazon to pick up now. And man, this guy's got a wealth of knowledge and information about writing and, and everything DC. That's awesome. That's amazing. It is amazing. I love it's it. Even, guy's been around for a while. He's yeah. writing comics for years. Yeah. I mean, it sounded like I was being... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Sarcastic? Yeah, but I wasn't. That really is awesome. That's, that really is yeah. amazing. Um, I mean, <clears throat> it's hard enough to break into this business and to be al- around as long as Kupperberg is. Yeah. It's just, it's just rare. It's like 1%. Right. Well, he's, and he's, you know, he's written an estimated thousand issues of, of comics over the years. Of like, you know, of like Superman action comics, Supergirl. I mean, he wrote the, uh, I'm in the process of writing series. one and I'm like, couldn't you imagine doing it a thousand times? <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's it's insane, but it's awesome at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it's it's incredible. So Casey got to sit down and talk with them. Yeah, yeah, Casey sat down and talked to them, and uh, they had a great time, man. Well, let's sit back and listen to Casey Tickle Monster Allen, who, so people know, has his own Kickstarter going on right now for vid- Voodoo Child. I almost said it, dude. <laughs> but his project just got picked up by Kickstarter as a project we love. Which yeah, is huge, dude, man. That's awesome. Yeah, that's huge, huge. So, congratulations, Casey. Now let's sit back and listen to you talk with Paul Kupperberg in your own words. All right, everybody, welcome again to another episode of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have a guy, he, he's been in comics for a while. He's been pretty much everywhere and he's got a ton of experience and a ton of books under his belt to boot. So everybody, welcome to the show, Paul Kupperberg. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. So kind of stressed, but things are looking up. The numbers are slowly creeping up in, in the favor of, of goodness. Yes, it's been a wild ride. I, I figured it would be because... Uh, we live in a country full of dopes. Exactly, yeah. But yeah, 
I'm I'm looking forward to hopefully not seeing a particular family in the news anymore. Yeah. For the foreseeable future. <laughs> that would be nice. So Paul, you you do comics. And not only do you do comics, you've you've done a, a ton of things in the comics world and out of the comics world. Can can I ask you what what got why comics? What got you started? Comics were kind of well, they they were there so early in my life. I mean, I, I you know, I joke I came out of the womb reading an issue of Superman, but you know that's a joke because really it was you know it was a little dot comic because you know Superman was too sophisticated for me when I was first born. <laughs> but um, no, I mean I, you know I, I I my my older brother, a couple of years older than me, there were comic books around because of him. My uncle, who is only ten years older than me. I lived next door, so he had comic books all the time, and you know they were just there. And the I, I read them; they were around, and I picked them up. And I saw, I first saw Superman, the Superman cartoons on television. They were in the 1940s Fleischer Studio Superman cartoons, and I just fell in love with the character. And you know, a little while later, I turned around at the candy store and looked on the newsstand, and there was the same guy, but you know, in in color. And, uh, you know, there was, and, and I got the Superman comics and, you know, that was it. I was just, I was just a fan. I just loved them. They, they, they sparked my imagination. They provided me a kind of a little, a little safe haven to crawl into for, you know, certain circumstances in my life. So comic books. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the, the way you're talking about the safe haven, I, I can definitely relate to that. That was a, a big part of what drew me to them and kind of it offered me a lot in that. I think, I think a lot of kids go to comic books or stick with comic books because of that. There's a, you know, no matter how screwed up the world is around you, there's this very definite world of black and white, you know, we're good and evil and you know, you know, you know whose side you're on and you know which side you should be on as opposed to, you know, living life. When you were, initially writing comics did did that ever come to mind when when you were thinking about your potential audience while you were writing it did it do you think you ever wrote for the the person that you were when you were a kid oh i think sure i i think we all write for the person we were when we were kids you know this is there's you don't get into comics it it's it's such a a specific world i mean well it, i mean it it used to be more specific than it is now now it's everywhere but you know comic books was just a very small insular world and you you got into that you know if if you got into the business it was kind of like now you're now you're able to become part of these characters that meant so much to you because they were this safe haven i mean i i i kind of i don't know if i had it in mind originally but pretty early on i had written this backup a feature in adventure comics. It was an Aqualad three-parter. I think it was like, you know, the secret origin of Aqualad. And it was just, you know, it was a little three-parter. It was nicely drawn. Carl, Carl, Carl Potts and Dick Giordano, I think, did the art. And But a year or two after it was published, a fan approached me at a convention and told me that that story had come at a time in her life that, you know, was very difficult. And for whatever reason, that story helped her get through it. You know, the, the way Accolade resolved his, his problems and, and dealt with his life, whatever it was in there. I mean, to me, it was just, you know, a couple of six pagers. But to her, 
you know, there was there was deep meaning. There was something in there that that meant something to her. And and so from that point on, it was kind of like, oh yeah, there are people reading this. And no matter what my motive, and usually my motive is, you know, how do I fill twenty pages? You know, it it does it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm being facetious there. Although you know, early on, back in the seven, you know, I started writing in 1975, and uh, we were. You know, we were just a few years away from that goofy, you know, Mort Weisinger era of Superman and and, and that even sillier uh, Jack Schiff era of Batman where he fought, you know, aliens and monsters. And, and you know, so that kind of, you know, stories were just beginning to have more meaning. You know, we were just, writers were just beginning to in, in, in put more into stories than just, you know, Superman beats up Lex Luthor, or, you know. So... And I was kind of, you know, so focused on being a comic book writer. It just didn't occur to me that I had to write about anything other than writing comic book stories. You know, later on, again, with, you know, incidents like with the Accolade story, that the, the, the awareness comes along. But, you know, sometimes it's just like, you know, seriously, you know, how do you fill 20 pages this month? Yeah. And, and I was looking at... You said you came in right at 75. You were actively participating, uh, whether you knew it or not, in, in a huge paradigm shift in how comics were written and perceived. Oh, sure. Well, um, you know, I came out of the fan movement, out of fandom in the early 70s. Paul Levitz and I met in, in middle school, and you know, we, <laughs> we were publishing fanzines in, in the early 70s that you know led to Paul's job at DC and, and that is wild. So, you know, I mean, I, I was deep into it. I was, you know, we were, we were publishing the comic reader and, you know, we were, I think I subs- we were selling about 3,500 copies a month, which was, you know, pretty damn good for something being produced out of Paul's basement. <laughs> I should say, right. That's, that's massive. And, uh, uh, you, that's beating some, some actual comics. <laughs> um, yeah. Figures yeah. today, <laughs> well, said but true. But you know, so I was deep into this whole thing, and and I was you know very aware of you know as, as doing fanzines, you know writing about this stuff and 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 editing you know the, the fanzines, you know. So I I knew what was coming along, you know, and I and I knew these guys, you know. I just kind of you know hanging around the the periphery there in, in fandom. And, and, you know, the uh, conventions, which were much less structured then than they are today, you know, like Steve Englehart and, and Roy Thomas and, 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 and uh, you know, Steve Gerber were kind of like, you know, I could hang with them, you know, you know, because I had friends who came out of fandom who went into the business, you know, Tony Isabella and Carl Gafford and, and uh, Tony Tallinn and a bunch of other people. So, you know, my friends, these guys were moving in New York living in Brooklyn for the most part around where, where Levitz and I lived. And then they were getting jobs at DC and Marvel. So, you know, I was, I was, I was more inside than, and, and frankly, back in those days, you know, because of the, the, the fandom and, you know, my, my connections there, I, you could go up to DC and hang out there. You know, you didn't really like, you know, if the receptionist knew your face, you could get inside. You know, so it, it was, you know, so yes, all very long-winded way of saying, yes, I was very aware of the change at the moment. Yes. <laughs> but but I, I didn't have the chops yet to be part of it. That that took a few years for me to kind of, you know, grow into the experience and, and learn what I was doing and, 
and frankly have something to say. You know, I was 20. Uh, I was 19 when I first when I sold my first stories. So, you know, I was this kid who had gone to high school and college and and, you know, hung around and smoked dope in Brooklyn. I didn't have a wealth of experience and they wouldn't let me write stories about smoking dope in Brooklyn. So, you know. <laughs> so, uh, when you when you first started in I I guess like the the big two, you know, leaving your your indie roots, I I guess you started at DC, correct? Well, I actually started at Charlton Comics. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah, I made my first sales there at uh, early in 1975. They were on the way out, right? Oh, no, no. They were still, they still had a good 10 years to go. Um, and this was just right after a very fertile period at Charlton where guys like Joe Staten and John Byrne and, and Mike Zeck and, uh, you know, like that were coming in and, you know, learning, learning their way around and then moving on to Marvel and, and, and all that. So I came in at kind of the tail end of that, you know, that era at, at Charlton. And, you know, did a lot of horror. Well, not a lot. I did a bunch of horror stories for them, you know, those six and eight page monster and ghost stories. Um, and then then I, I got a call from uh, somebody at D.C. and I, I was assigned a, a 10 page story for Superman family. Oh, that's awesome. How how was that going going into D.C.? Was there anyone there that kind of took you under their wing and showed you the ropes, how things work at the big two? Um, well, there were a lot of the younger editors were, were there and the, you know, just coming in, you know, I didn't, when I first started up there, I, I wasn't working with Julie Schwartz or for Mort uh, or for Murray Boltonoff or, you know, those guys, I was working for Jack Harris and Paul Levitz and, uh, you know, the, the, the newer, the younger editors, but you know, it was cool. It was great. You know, I, I, nobody really took me under their wing, but you know, just doing this stuff on a, on a regular basis and starting to interact with professionals, you know, who really do have the experience, you know, I could sit around and, and, and talk to Bob Kaniger, who though insane was, you know, this <laughs> good writer of decades, you know, he, he had done an, an he had an incredible body of work. And if you could get past his insanity, which I happen to enjoy, you know, it was, it, it was, you could learn something, you know, there was, you know, so, you know, it's just a matter of picking it up by bits and pieces. And of course, you know, the main thing is I'd been already had 15 years of reading comic books behind me and, you know, was still reading whatever was being published in those days, you know, literally whatever was being published, you could buy everything off the stands and, and, you know, there were seven companies, whatever. So um, do you, th do you think that your experience with et cetera kind of gave you an edge in that you, you kind of already had a, a healthy idea of how publishing happened. Yeah. I mean, there was, you know, there, there's something to be said for that hands-on experience. You know, it was all very, nowadays it, it, it's so, you know, it's so crude. And, but, you know, we were working with, we produced our fanzines on, on a typewriter and graph paper and, and glue sticks. You know, oh, wow. <laughs> and there was this uh, stuff called press type, which was a, a vinyl, sheet with with kind of plastic vinyl letters on them and when you burnished it you know you rub them off the page on uh, off the sheet onto the page it you know you had the lettering there so you know all the headlines and stuff were done like that 
and then you everything had to be cut apart with scissors and pasted up on on you know with glue sticks on the boards and and you know the whole bit it was all again very very low tech and but you know you kind of you get your hands dirty you, you you know how it's done you know how the bits and pieces uh fit together i mean i back around i guess it must have been around 2003 or 4 i was in uh, dc's production department which was uh, by then called the pre-press department. And, you know, everybody's on their on their big screen computers and doing all, all everything uh, digitally. And I was down there to get some stuff scanned and I'm hanging out. And one of the one of the kids in the uh, on in, in, you know, working on corrections or whatever, he goes, you've been around here a long time. What's that thing on the shelf there? And there was this old waxer on the, on the shelf. It was a machine that applied a thin coat of hot wax to the back of a piece of, you know, whatever you needed to be uh, pasted up to the page. And that replaced rubber cement. And, you know, you just run this through the machine. It would put the coat of wax on it and slap it on the page. And, you know, you had your paste up done. It didn't last long, but it lasted long enough to, you know, take the, uh, take the, uh, the, the shot or whatever that you needed. So anyway, he says, what's that? I said, it's a waxer. And he looks at me blankly. I said it was used for paste up. And he kind of gets that. And I go, yeah, it was what replaced rubber cement. Blank stare, you know. <laughs> what rubber cement was. And, this is, you know, this was a 20-something, you know, a smart guy. I mean, you know, I had worked with him. He, he knew his stuff. He did a good job. But, you know, there was no need for him to know about T-squares and X-Acto knives and rapidographs, you know. So That is wild. And, and- to think that you you've also participated, you know, from from the crudest skills in, in putting together a book. To you know. when I was in high school and doing fanzines, mimeograph fanzines. Do you even uh, and ditto? I had ditto. Do you even know what that is? You know, I'm trying to remember what a mimeograph is. It's well, it, it, they're both a. Um, it, um, uh, a liquid a uh, there there are stencils you type and draw on these stencils and then you run them through machines that use a spirit based solution to transfer the image to paper <laughs> yeah yeah i'm i'm completely drawn a blank <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> and i'm not, i'm not like a <laughs> Like, I'm not a zoomer or anything. I'm just so. <laughs> um, Ditto printed this this purple kind of. You know, teachers used them in school. They would they would you know do our tests on them. Didn't you like crank it out? They literally cranked it out. There was yes, okay, yes. One of Carl Gafford had 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 a Ditto machine, and you know, cut my do my fanzines at home, and you know, do my stencils. And then bring them over and run them off at Carl's place. But yeah, I mean, you know, so we were literally, you know, drawing these things with crayons. <laughs> that is wild. And, and, you know, I was a member of what's called an APA, Amateur Press Alliance. So there would be like whatever there was, 30, 50 members. And you'd produce a fanzine. You'd run off the 30 or 50 copies, send it to a guy called a central mailer who would collate contributions from everybody into one giant magazine pack, you know, one package. And then everybody would, he would mail back to everybody, you know, that monthly mailing, which included a copy of everybody's contribution. That was, that was what we had instead of internet groups. Anyway, I'm starting (laughs) to sound like an old man sitting on the porch (laughs) and telling you youngins about us catfishing back in the day 
using nothing but, you know. That's so cool. And I, I, I think I say this almost every, almost every time I talk to somebody who's been around since like the, the seventies in, in comics is I wish they had a madman type show. Yeah. Based in like at the big two during that time, because I've heard, I've heard stories and I mean, it, it just sounds wild. It was, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it was, it was days, before, you know, there was no political correctness. There was no, you know, there was no HR, <laughs> you know, it was like, <laughs> it was like what the things that went on there, you know, I want to like, just out of respect for the dead, you know, I, but the disgusting behavior that, you know, some of the guys up there, you know, like, when we were coming in, you know, the, us, when us youngins were coming in, you know, we would look at these guys and go, what the, you know, how you, how, you can't act like that. But, you know, it was really old school. It was just, you know, it was just, <laughs> it was fun as hell, but it was, <laughs> but it was just wrong. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it, but by the way, there's no like language restrictions on this show or something. So if, God forbid you, you I'm from Brooklyn. The odds of me saying fuck at random. Hey man. <laughs> <laughs> have have at it. So I'm I'm looking at at the stuff that you've written and, and you've been all over the place. Like pretty much any book at DC that they have, you've had a hand in writing at least a few I, issues of. I was a I was a, a utility player for, for a long time there. I was fast and I guess just facile enough that, you know, when books were running late, they could throw it to me and say, we need 20 pages of dialogue overnight and, you know, or, or, you know, we need to fill in here or this. So, you know, I was there, I was around and, and I, and I could do the job. So yeah, I, I got to, I got my fingers on a lot of different characters and, and it was a lot of fun. You know, I mean, I love these characters, you know, I, I, I grew up on them and, and, you know, I was finally getting to play with them. When you write, when you do a fill in for somebody's book, do you, do you have to actively uh, adopt that writer's voice? No, No. I mean, I I don't, I I, I never did. I mean, I don't, I I may, it depends on what I was doing. If I was just doing a dialogue job, you know, I was just writing the characters and hopefully, you know, the way I wrote them agreed with the, with, with the writer's way of doing it. And if not, it's the editor's job to, you know, kind of bring them into line. If I was doing a, a story, you know, just a plotting and, 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 and dialogue and the whole thing myself, I was always conscious of keeping, of doing stories that were out of the main line of, of this, you know, of what was going on in the book so that I didn't risk screwing up anything that was going on. And I didn't have to worry about, you know, the continuity and, 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 and that voice so much, you know, mine was different enough to, you know, to, to, that I was safe, you know, to go out on my own. Was there ever any one character that you had the the opportunity to write that really resonated with you? Ah, yeah, it's, it's funny, the. You know, I did so much superhero, so many superhero stories uh, that, and it's hard, you know, like I have a, a feeling for these guys, for, you know, for for uh, a lot of these characters and, and you know, they, they mean a lot to me, but wow, I just lost my train of thought. That's weird. 
What was there any character that really resonated with you? Yeah, those tend to come from weird. You know, it, it has been said. You know, like in every everything you write, there's there's your character. There's there's your avatar character. You know, it's like Jack Kirby's was was the thing in the FF. You know, you can always tell that was Jack. You know that that was that that was the character that represented him, and I seldom got the feeling that my character, you know, that these superheroes represented me. You know, the closest it came with with Arion, because that was a character I created. So you know, I could imbue him with whatever, and it just so happened that there was you know a lot of me in the ca- in in the character. But you know, the the heroes themselves weren't the you know, uh, yeah, I didn't really like identify with the with the heroes. When I later on, when I was doing things like the Archie, the life with Archie stories, I found it a lot easier to to identify with the Archie gang than I ever did with you know with, with any superhero, because you know I could be one of the Archie gang. And you you made it real. Well, that was the that was the brief. You know, that was that was it. Let's let's play these guys as if they were. Living in the real world, facing real world problems and issues. And, you know, so, yeah, that was great. You know, it's superheroes. And again, I love them. But there's, you know, that, that, that the impossibility that they, that they overcome with practically everything they do makes it difficult for me to, you know, kind of get into them that, that deep, you know, the characters themselves, because, you know, I can't do that. And, and, and I also know that in the real world, when you're faced with an insurmountable problem, you don't pull, you know, the ultimate nullifier out of your ass and say, yeah, <laughs> this is a problem. You know, it doesn't work that way, you know, but that's what comic book superheroes are. There's always a device, you know, there's always there's always Cisco coming up with a with a thing in the laboratory so that the Flash can screw things up yet more, you know. So it's it just it, I I kind of I, I guess I lost my my suspension of disbelief as far as that goes with these guys, but you know after writing so many of them it it, it gets tough to kind of hang in there. You know it was easier with even with a character like Vigilante who was a you know a, a total psycho. Even when he, even when you thought he was normal, let's face it, he put on a costume to go out and kill people. He's a psycho. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like when I took over that book, it was like, remember, he's a hero. <laughs> no, 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 he's not a hero. He's he's a crazy man who thinks he's a hero. You know, and ultimate, and and I knew that one day we were going to reach a point where it was going to be like. He's not going to be able to keep fooling himself forever, you know, but hell, you know, who can't identify with that? You know, even if we're not going out at night and murdering people, <laughs> we're still fooling ourselves. You know, everybody is living some kind of lie and is, and is, and is fooling themselves over something, you know, what was Jeff Goldblum's line in, in the big chill, you know, rational, everybody rationalizes, you know, you can't get through a day without a rationalization you know, over something. It's like, you know, it's not like sex, you know, it's like you, you, you now I'm, I'm screwing up the, the analogy, but anyway. Hey man, uh, we're, we're a comics podcast, man. Not many people know that here. So, 
Go watch The Big Chill and, and, and you'll see. But anyway, you know, it's just, so yeah, I, I can, I can rationalize, I can deal with, with more down to earth characters. I'm more comfortable with them. I'd rather write them than, than guys flying around and, you know, fighting cosmic villains because, you know, it just, it, it doesn't hold the same reality for me. So what has been the most fulfilling thing that you've written? Because you, you've also done a lot of prose work as well. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've written a lot of different things. I've written, you know, comic books and novels and short stories and kids books. I've written, I've written Mad Libs and, and color and activity books and, and, you know, history and all kinds of stuff. But I think, I, I think some of the things that I really, you know, I think are some of my best work are, are the Archie run and, and the Vigilante run, you know, as far as comic books go. I did a Phantom Stranger miniseries in the in the '90s that was that turned out pretty well, I think. You know, I, I'm really, I, you know, I'm, but yeah, it's these it's these guys. I mean, you know, even in in the costume, it's still you know, vigilante wasn't a superhero, so it it worked for me. But yeah, I'd, I'd much rather I'd much rather write about real people, even if they're in ridiculous, you know, impossible situations, you know, than than guys who can fly. I understand that completely. Um, during your Archie run, you you actually introduced, I, I think it was one of the first gay characters into that universe. Well, uh, yeah, that was Kevin Keller. I didn't introduce Kevin Keller. He was created by Dan Parent in the teen Archie books. And we used him in the life with Archie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You, you married him. You, well, I'm not personally. I mean, I liked him, and I thought <laughs> for a while. But yes, we married him off in in the series. We found him a nice doctor, and 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 married him off. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Did at the time there there was a little bit of controversy about that. Did you have to deal with any backlash personally? Me personally, no. You know, for, for from what I could see, the fans were fully supportive of, of the of what was going on in the comic. The only the main pushback we got was from a group called A Million Moms or the Million. Oh God, moms. yeah, they're awful. Well, you know, it's actually six moms in a fax machine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they were boycotting. They were calling for a boycott of Toys R Us because they were selling the Life of Archie number sixteen, which was the marriage issue. And, uh, you know, why should our children have to see this shoved in their face when they walk through Toys R Us? Because they live in the fucking world, lady. That's why. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, but anyway, they, they put up a big stink. And thanks to them, Life with Archie number 16 became the first Archie comic ever to sell out its print run. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that, that's a perfect middle finger to, to those oh, assholes. Protest me anytime you want, ladies. Come on on down. How did you enjoy your time working at Archie? Oh, I loved it. Um, It was a great experience. It was, I was working with Victor Gorlick, who was, you know, one of the sweetest guys ever and a really good editor. Um, He'd been with Archie. Fascinating dude. Yeah, yeah, he was great. I'd known him for a while and, you know, finally got got a chance to really work with him in those years. And it it was a great time. You know, I, they left me alone. They, they, you know, I'd come in every six months and we'd sit down and talk about the broad strokes of the, of the six issue arc that was coming up. And, you know, but it would be along the lines of, you know, you know, financial troubles, Cheryl Blossom, breast cancer, you know, I'm going to kill Miss Grundy. Is that okay? 
You know, it's, uh, and they go, yeah, yeah, great. Oh, good, good. Keep going. Yeah, do more. They never said no, you know, no matter what. It was, you know, we're going to take on, you know, the, the issue of, of, of gun control. Great, do it. Gay marriage, no problem. Uh, you know, whatever I came up with, it was go for it. So, you know. That's amazing that you yeah. had that freedom. Yeah, well, you know, fortunately, they trusted me to, to deliver. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got very, I got, I received no pushback from them. And, you know, their editing was, the editing was minimal. So I was very lucky. Either they, they liked what I was doing or I had them totally fooled. <laughs> do, do you think that your work on, on the books kind of paved the way for them to eventually tackle some of the stuff that they've done like oh, currently? Okay. No, no question. I mean, and uh, even the Riverdale show. Oh, sure. No, uh, they have said to me, you know, the, the publisher has said to me uh, that, you know, what, what I did and what I did, you know, I, I, I do want to point out was based on the situation set up by Michael Uslin in the um, Archie, the married life, uh, you know, miniseries and starting in Archie 600. But, but yeah, no, it, it is, you know, I have been told that yes, everything that's been done since is because, of the success of, of life with Archie. That that's, that's awesome. And it's, it's amazing that that character is still going strong. I mean, he's, I don't think it's amazing. I think, it's, um, you know, uh, back when I was, you know, a heavy duty fanboy buy and read everything on the newsstands that included Archie. I mean, I remember back around 1967 or eight, I traded uh, some kid, you know, about 10 superhero comics for, for 300 Archies (laughs) and I read them, you know? Wow. Yeah, no, I, 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 so I've been reading those characters all my life. You know, I, I didn't stop even as an adult, you know, the comics, you know, especially you work in the industry, they, the, 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 the comics just kind of come through the office and you, you pick them up and read them, you know? So, you know, never stopped reading them. When I sat down to first write, the characters, which was in the just, you know, regular humor teen Archie stories. It was like, yeah, no problem. I know these guys, you know, I know what makes them tick because I've been reading them for, for, you know, 45, 50 years or whatever. And, you know, I knew that Archie was the only reason Archie was such a bumbler was because he was so anxious to, you know, please everybody that he was always tripping over his own feet to get, you know, to, to be the first to be helpful. You know, Jughead, actually the smartest guy in Riverdale. He's really? Just, yes. Oh, absolutely. Jughead, if you look at what he he does in a lot of stories, he's always playing people and, he, and they're always falling for it. You know, he's always manipulating them. He's always kind of playing little mind games with them. My first story focused around him was a the ganger at his house and they're going through the attic looking for something and they find an old treasure map. That supposedly uh, where Dillinger buried some bank loot back in the 30s in his backyard. And uh, Jughead just poo-poo's going, nah, that's just grandpa's junk. You know, he was always goofing around. And, and the gang is sure that they got Dillinger's loot in the backyard. So they start digging up the backyard, according to the map. And at the end of the story, you find out it was planted there by Jughead because, you know, they had to replace the septic system. So <laughs> backyard for him. So, you know, that was my take on Jughead. So you had him pull a Tom Sawyer, basically. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that, is, that is awesome. So 
you you did a ton of stuff for DC. You didn't really do a, a whole lot of stuff for Marvel. Is there a reason for that? No, I no. I I was a DC guy. I I, I like the characters. My brother worked at Marvel, so that was a good incentive to stay away. <laughs> uh, so you know, yeah, it just never really really happened. I I, I wrote for Crazy Magazine in the late seventies and early eighties. I was doing their movie parodies and some TV parodies and stuff. And what else did I do? Oh, I did the two. Well, that wasn't for Marvel. That was for pocketbooks. I wrote two novels, um, uh, a Spider-Man and Spider-Man and Hulk novel for, for a series that they uh, pocketbooks published in, in 79 and 80 uh, that Len Wein and Marv Wolfman were editing. But other than that, no, never, never did anything. I think I did a fill-in, a Captain America fill-in in the 70 sometime. And then I wrote, one issue of Savage Sword of Conan in the 90s. I would have liked to have done more Conan. That was fun. Yeah, and they Marvel's got that license back. And yeah, that's all right. they won't even take my call. It's all right. <laughs> <Ooh>. they, <laughs> <laughs> so so how was it having your brother in the industry as well? Was that was was that did that help you out at all to to help kind of navigate no. No, to no. avoid? <laughs> Here's what Saul Harrison, the vice president of DC Comics, uh, my brother had worked in DC's production department in the early 1970s, right out of high school, and uh, and was fired eventually. And uh, Saul Harrison, when I was on staff in 1977, just before the DC implosion, Saul uh, came to, you know, something he overheard me say, which was probably, you know, nothing very polite or something. I did, but Sal just gave me a look and he said, you know, I didn't much care. For, I didn't like your brother and I'm not crazy about you either. Oh. So, <laughs> but it's all right. Sal's dead and I'm not. So it was my brother, come to think of it. But anyway, no, he was not. He, he was a hindrance. He was, you know, people, people literally heard my name and turned their back on me. Oh. He was a much beloved character. <clears throat> so... You worked at DC under under Khan, didn't you, Jeanette Khan? Oh, yeah, I remember the day she showed up. Yeah, how was that? Because she she fascinates me. She's 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 an incredibly smart and perceptive person. I liked her the first time I met her. She was just like we had had this we we had had these these you know dusty old men running comic books forever, and you know Sal Harrison. I mean Sal, you know Sal knew his stuff. But he was old school. And, you know, and Carmine was just, a, you know, he was an asshole who, who <laughs> you know, held lots of grudges. And, you know, the reason he stopped being publisher was because he was an asshole and they got rid of him. Yeah. So, you know, so Jeanette walks in the door. And first of all, you know, I mean, what am I? I'm, I'm 22 at the time and Jeanette's 27, 28. Oh wow! I didn't know she was that young when she oh, came. Oh yeah, in. yeah. She was a kid. I mean, you know, she had been published. She had published a couple of magazines for I forget Sony. I think was one of them. I had published them, but they were these kids' magazines, Dynamite, and 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 one other, I think. But and she knew her stuff. You know, like you you mentioned an obscure character, and she knew who that was. You know, and she was she immediately came in, and you know, was making changes and. And, you know, kind of like she was like coming into the old mansion and pulling the dusty old sheets off the furniture and opening the, 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 the drapes and letting the sun in. 
so yeah, no, that that was great. And you know, over the years, the more I, I got to know her and 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 work with her, you know, never never had anything but admiration. Was that a a learning curve for some of the older oh, older goodness. guys that were there? Oh my God, yes. I mean, everybody was respectful, but you know, they 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 kind of saw them, you know, uh, that had to be writing on the wall for them, you know. Oh yeah. Not only were was that a major change, but you know, there were guys like me coming along. You know, so Bob Kaniger and, uh, and who had been in the business since the mid forties, and Bob Haney who had been in it since the fifties, and well, I mean, you know, you know, nineteen seventy five. The comic book industry is forty years old. Okay, right, and the guys who created the comic book industry are still alive. They're still working. They're in yeah. their 60s and 70s, you know, or maybe 70s, you know. So, you know, and, and now this new generation is coming in. And, you know, there's been a trickle before that, you know, in, in the 60s. You had a few people coming, Stranko and Neil Adams and, and you know, Jerry and Denny and Roy Thomas and, and uh, Denny O'Neill and later on, a little later, Jerry uh, Conway. You know, so we were kind of trickling in. But in the 70s, it was like, you know. <laughs> it, it just, you know, we we were all creeping out of the woodwork and 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 starting to starting to come in. So, you know, the the the, the older creators were not were not happy, and and the editors were kind of like, you know, being very careful because, you know, there had only been a handful, not even a handful of, of women editors at DC over the years. You know, there had been Barbara Friedlander who, and, and Dorothy Woolfolk. Both of whom had worked on on the romance books at various times. Although in the forties, Dorothy had been, I think, on the superhero side because romance comics didn't exist, did they? Yeah, yeah. But Dorothy Rubicek, and then she married William Woolfolk, the writer. But you know, so th- th- there was still this, you know, yeah, sit down in the corner and you know, learn something, sweetie, attitude amongst the old the, the older guys. And, you know, my generation, my, you know, guys my age and a little older, you know, it's like, cool. Okay. Here's a talented woman. Great. Let's go. You know? So it was, uh, it, it was a very interesting time. And then of course, you know, we had, uh, she came in and shortly after we had the whole DC implosion. Are you familiar with that? Uh, uh, slightly, slightly. It was, it was just the, the winter of 77, 78 was terrible. And uh, half the country was closed because of ice storms and trucking was brought to a virtual standstill, which meant comic books didn't get distributed, which which meant distributors didn't get paid, which meant uh, distributors didn't pay publishers. DC was hit hard. We had just announced what was called the DC explosion, which was, I think, adding something like 18 titles, you know, new formats and new titles. A lot of them were reprints, but you know, it was a, it was a blatant attempt to, to, you know, bomb the, the, the newsstands and, and keep Marvel at bay because Marvel was, was expanding. And so at the last minute, you know, just as soon as this stuff is, is supposed to hit, comics stopped selling for a few months. And so DC immediately went, went in and, and you know, uh, within a month or two, just canceled all this stuff. And also, coincidentally, laid off a bunch of staff, myself, myself included. I was assistant PR guy at the time. So what did you do uh, after you got laid off with 
with DC. I mean, eventually you came back, but well, yeah, yeah. I, I collected unemployment and and uh, freelanced. Okay. Yeah. So I, I see here that you you worked with Jack Kirby. Uh, I worked adjacent to Jack Kirby. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it, again, back then, this was 1985 or six, uh, it was a superpowers miniseries based on the, the, uh, the toys, you know, the super, the yeah. super, uh, superpowers yeah, figures. Yeah. And I was assigned to write the second superpowers miniseries. The first one, I think had been written by Joey Cavallari and Jack had, had, had penciled it. But I didn't know who was going to pencil my miniseries. I was just, you know. So anyway, yes. So I wrote a full script and I turned it in. And the next thing I know, it's like, it's being drawn by Jack Kirby. That is nuts. Never exchanged a word with him. He drew my scripts the way I wrote them, you know. But even though, you know, so. And that was the way it worked most of the time in, in those days. You know, you wrote your script. You turned it into the editor. Like, like when I was doing the Superman books for Julie Schwartz, I seldom knew exactly who was going to draw uh, a story when I handed it in. It could be Kurt Swan. It could be Schaffenberger. It could be Alex Saviak. It might be, uh, you know, Eduardo Barreto. Who the hell knows? So you kind of, you know, you can't really write for a specific artist. But, you know, in this case, it was just like, well, okay, I'll take it, you know. <laughs> And yeah, it was a thrill just to, just to, you know, be in the same credit box. with them. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. How many people can say that? Excuse me. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Hello. Hey, I I am on a a zoom thing at the moment. Um, Can I call you back when I'm done? No, not at all. All right. Thanks. Bye. Okay. (laughs) I saw. So. Um, yeah, yeah, you you got to work with Kirby, and and that's that that's amazing. Yeah, well, you know, again, like I said earlier, that all these all these great you know classic guys were still working when I was when I got into the business. So I was you know having an amazing you know you know run of people drawing stories that I wrote. You know, uh, I turned in an issue of DC Comics Presents, and and. You know, the next time I see it, Julie had uh, Gray Morrow draw it. You know, um, oh wow, yeah. So I, I worked with a lot of a lot of these guys. You know, just in passing. You know, I once I, I did a weird war story for Paul Levitz in the seventies, and and it got drawn by by George Evans, who was you know an EC Comics artist. Yeah, yeah. There were these brilliant war you know war stories, and and, and it's like. Years later, I said, Jesus, how the hell, you know, now that I think of it, how the hell does George friggin' Evans wind up drawing my stupid little... <laughs> and Paul said, it was just, a, you know, luck of the draw. You know, these guys would, would call up and say, hey, I, 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 I'm, you know, I'm between jobs. You got, you got a little short thing I can do to, you know, to fill a few days. And Paul would just like whatever was on top of the, of the script pile. Go, yeah, here's, here's a weird war tale story. Boom. Yeah. George Rassman, like they, it seems like very blue collar in how they approach their craft and just nose to the grindstone and just did the work day in, day out, right? And, you know, they had also had, you know, again, George had done, you know, EC Comics and, and you know, Secret Agent Corrigan in the newspapers, which was a beautiful, you know, beautiful pieces of art. He was just, yeah, he was a craftsman. You know, these guys couldn't draw bad. 
you know, <laughs> I, I sometimes think some of them just like, no matter how hard they try, you know, Alex Toth could not come up with a bad drawing. He just can't, couldn't, you know, he was Alex friggin' Toth. So it's, yeah, it, it was just, it was, I was very lucky. I, I got to, you know, Ross Andrew drew something, a, a vigilante annual I wrote, you know, whatever. It was just, yeah, it, it was, it was a great time. There was a lot of, a lot of amazing talent still, still working there. While you were there, you also did a ton of editing. Um, Later on, yeah. Was that was that enjoyable to you to to do that? And was it was it hard to navigate the different personalities that you would encounter while you were doing your job? I I, I actually enjoy editing. It's I call it the fun part of writing. You know, it's the it's the plotting and the the problem solving without the actual aggravation of having to write the thing. Uh, <laughs> but it's a it, it it's a challenge i mean i didn't have i think i adapted to it fairly well you know i knew most of the personalities i worked with you know i i again after having been in the business for however long it had been at the time you know i knew a lot of people and and you know so most of the people i was i would have to work with were were known to me or if I was making the assignments, it would be like, hey, I'm going to call people I know because you, know, you want to share the wealth with your friends. So no, I enjoyed it. I thought it was, I thought it was fun. I did it for a, a long time. It, the only thing that, you know, uh, that moved me out of the editorial department was just, you know, some of the people that I was working with, they were just not, they were sucking the life out of the, they were sucking the fun out of the job and the life out of me. So, you know, I moved, I moved out of editorial. But, you know, but the work itself was great. I mean, was that a hard decision for you to make? Well, no, not once it, you know, when it became a a choice of my peace of mind or, you know, whatever, I chose my peace of mind. I mean, there were just some less than stellar managers working in the DCU at the time I was there. And, you know, they were, I mean, you've read, you've read about a bunch of them in recent years. You know they have made uh, they have made the news for for uh, some of their abuses. So oh, yeah. um, you know that was that was who I was working with, and 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 some of them who didn't make the news were just you know untalented and and obnoxious, and uh, you know just if 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 you have to answer to a de- uh, well I won't even use the name, but you know I I, I could not continue answering to these morons. <laughs> okay so now's the time of the show where we name name no i'm joking <laughs> did you end up at <laughs> weekly wrong you know what if you really want me to because you know what i've got to lose nothing <laughs> Man, i, I don't want to i don't want you to run into these guys later and <laughs> have to deal with any bs man how did you end up at weekly world news oh just lucky i guess that was, it, it was being edited by Michael Roven, who is, not Michael Roven, uh, <laughs> geez, that's his son, Jeff Roven, who I've known since the early, you know, 70s, back from, uh, you know, his days working at DC Comics. He was Joe Kubert's assistant, you know. Anyway, so I've known him forever. He was working at, he, he took over, he became editor of Weekly World News. We were in touch. He, you know. I started writing for the paper. I wrote for the paper for a year or two. And then he was, he wanted to change up the staff. He was in New York. 
most of the weekly world news staff was in Florida and they were all, you know, the, the, the people doing it for the, they, they were loyal to the editor who came before him. Yeah. They're old guard. And, yeah. So uh, he wanted to switch it up and move everything to New York. So I was the first one. He hired me to be executive editor and, you know, kind of anchor, anchor the New York office working out of American media right down the hall from the National Enquirer. And, and then a few other people came on. Bob Greenberger came on to be managing editor. And I hired Maddie Blaustein from DC to do our photo, you know, photoshopping. And, and, uh, um, you're not, you're not trying to tell me that bad boy is a, is a Photoshop. No, not that boy. Okay. No. Okay. Good. Thank God. <laughs> no, no. Everything you look, uh, it said right on the cover, the world's only reliable newspaper. Uh, <laughs> and we weren't, you could rely on everything in there to be false. Uh, <laughs> but no, it was a great gig. I, I loved, I mean, writing for it was just, you know, a pisser. It's just, you know. It, it's satire at its most basic level. You know, what The Onion does now, we were doing then. Yeah, you, you trailblazed a, a lot of satirical media. Oh, yeah. The, the, when Weekly World News started out as a weird combination of kind of fake news and, and truly bizarre news, you know, like out, you know, people with, you know, neck rings that make their neck four feet long and shit like that. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but then it turns, you know, completely to satire and just, it was just hysterical, you know, whatever. I, my favorite, one of the favorite pieces I, of mine I wrote was uh, about a fight that broke up at a dyslexics convention because everybody in the audience thought they had the winning raffle ticket. <laughs> yeah. What else can you do? Yuma like that. <laughs> But, you know, it was great. And, and, you know, it was fun while it lasted. But the, the, the paper went under the management of the National Enquirer. Not as smart as you'd think they would be, you know? Ahem. But, yeah. I mean, I, I was trying to bring... I, I had a deal to get the paper into comic shops through Diamond. We were working on a deal for action figures, you know, Batboy action figures and things like that. Had a book deal with Random House. Yeah, whole bunch of stuff going on, but uh, when the paper went under, the all, all the deals fell apart. So. That's a bummer because y- you know yeah. people would have would have rocked a, a bad boy T shirt or oh sure an action and, figure and or if, something. If they had, they actually, I made, I I, I worked out a deal with Diamond. They were going to take two thousand copies uh, a week, you know, non returnable, which was you know, the, these tabloids are very ex- are, are more expensive to 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 get on the newsstand than they are to produce or distribute. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. You're probably spending more, more in gas money than. Oh no, 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 not that. I mean, every pocket, you know, every, every magazine, like oh. in, in Walmart, you pay rental for that space. So yeah. whether that copy sells or not, you're paying, they're taking money off of it. So even if they return that issue, they're still taking 50 cents rental for having it in their pocket in, in the store. So anyway, their distributor nixed my deal with, with Diamond, which was weird to me because the distributor was owned by American Media, the same company that owned Weekly World News. So, you know, never quite sure how what, what went on there, but hey. Um, That's a bummer. Yeah. So tell me about, tell me about this book you have, I Never Write for Money. <laughs> yes. It's called I Never Write for the Money. 
but I always turn in the manuscript for a check. <laughs> it's just a bunch of columns and essays and stuff I've written over the last, you know, 10 years or so that have to do with the writing and, and the comic book business, the publishing business, my own kind of like, you know, or it, it, the subtitle of the book is, you know, essays, essays on writing and, 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 and the aftermath, you know, because you reach a certain point in your career where you're no longer in demand and, you know, things get, things get weird. So yeah, it's just more of a kind of a, a loose look back at that, at, at, uh, at my life and career. That, that's awesome. What's, what's the number one thing that, that people ask you in, in regards to, to comics and, <laughs> and writing comics specifically? Um, well, the, the number one thing is usually about the format of your script. Go figure. <laughs> what format should my script be in? And to which I reply, script format. Well, what exactly? It doesn't matter. Is it legible? Is it readable? Can you, you know, can, 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 can the artist tell what you're trying uh, to say? Tell what you're trying to say. Can the editor tell, you know, can you tell the difference between the, 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 the description and the copy and the, and the dialogue and the, and the cap, you know, just make a clear form. It doesn't matter. Nobody cares. But, you know, there seems to be this kind of like, what software do you use? I chisel it into a rock. It doesn't. <laughs> um, I use Microsoft Word because it does everything. You know, it's just, yeah, there's this kind of this, this curiosity about the, about the technical, you know, the, those technical aspects over, you know, o- over the, the creative aspects. I mean, I, I also have another book called Paul Kupperberg's Illustrated Guide to Writing Comics, which is available even as we speak on Amazon.com. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. And the, I started off with an anecdote. I was at a, at a signing and this guy was talking to me and telling me about this, this comic story he was writing. And, you know, it's like, well, this guy is, you know, discovered he's a dupe of this government agency. And, blah, blah, blah. and he said, and he's just telling me the, the, you know, step-by-step plot, you know, plot, which is kind of, you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. You know, I, so uh, when he's done, I said, well, okay, that's your plot. What's the story? And he just repeats the plot. And it's like, you know, the, there's a difference. You know, plot is what happens. Story is why. And, and that's kind of the first, I think the first thing you've got to be very aware of, you know, when you're writing a story, people leave out the, the, the you know, it's, it's just, it becomes a, a kind of a chase without a, you know, w- without any meaning behind it. You know, there's, what are they after? You know, the, the best description I heard of, of you know, plotting, uh, plotting a story is uh, you, you got to ask, what does the character want? You know, it's really as simple as that. What does your character want? But people don't think that far. They just think about the, the actions, not the, the reason behind the action. Well, what's a good way to, to what do you do to think about how the character would? I try not to have to think. I hopefully, once I get into the story, I'll, ju- I'll react like, you know, I'll react for the character in the writing. You know, I've, I've got, like, for instance, I'm writing a, uh, a prose story now, Kolchak the, Kolchak the Night Stalker. And, oh, cool. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I've written him once before in a, in a comic book story for Moonstone. And, you know, I, I watch the show. I mean, I'm, 
you know, I, I actually had, you know, hadn't seen it in 30 years or whatever. I, I went and found, found an episode or two on YouTube and, and watched them just to kind of refresh myself on the, on the, on a speech pattern and stuff. But once I, once I get going, you know, well, I'm into it. I'm into the guy. I know, you know, hopefully I'll be able to, to, to think for, you know, I'll be his brain. I will be thinking what, how he would think. And, you know, hopefully, and most of the time it's true when I, when I hit a false note, I'll kind of know it because it won't work. You know, it it just, it'll feel wrong or it just won't work in the story. Going back to the life with Archie, I went into that expecting to have a lot of fun with Reggie. I thought I was going to take this blowhard and just, you know, smear him. (laughs) Reggie, Reggie was a bully. You know, he was written like a bully a lot of the times. And man, I just fucking hate bullies. You know, I just, there's, you know, nothing, nothing gets to me more. But once I got into writing him in, in Life with Archie, I, I realized every time I tried to, to disrespect him, it didn't work. The character didn't re- wouldn't react to that. The, the situation just didn't work because Reggie's not really not that guy. You know, Reggie, Reggie was this, you know, uh, I finally figured out he was the he was the high school jock whose, you know, biggest moments are behind him, or so he thinks, you know, now he's grown up and he's got to deal with life and, and there's no, you know, nobody cheering him on anymore. And, um, you know, I started to feel sorry for the guy <laughs> and, and got a lot of respect for him and, you know, wound up ultimately, I hope, doing right by him. But I just, I just couldn't make the character do what felt false to me. That, what was it hard for you to, to, let the character do what he needed to do. No, it's easy. Really? Oh yeah. E- even yeah. though you had the outside perception at first of, of well, obviously he's a bully. You know, it was just not working for me. I wasn't, I, 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 I just couldn't, you know, make it fit and, and work realistically. So once I let go of that perception and just wrote the way I, I, I was obviously, you know, feeling it went a lot smoother. That's, that's awesome. And it's, it's fascinating to me just being able to let go and, and just let it happen. Cause I, I, I write, I try to write. I'm not at all a professional. I, I have a comic that I'm working on. Hopefully it'll go to Kickstarter eventually, but I mean, I, I do this on the weekends and, and when my kids are asleep, man. And <laughs> occasionally I'll be like, you're forcing this. You're, you're trying to force, you know, a square peg into a round hole. And it's just, it's just not happening. Yeah. I mean, you, ha- you know, the uh, William Faulkner in his Pulitzer Prize acceptance speech said that the human heart and conflict with itself is the only thing worth writing about. And it's true. You know, again, what I said before about what does the character want? You, you know, you have to let the character follow its heart. You have to let it go where, where he or she are going to go. You can't make them, you can, if you force them, you'll you'll lose belief in what you're doing and the reader will see that i mean you know you how many times have you read something and just thought man this is off you know this this is isn't right and it's not you know you just know that there's something going on i mean shit you know i can i can look back at some stories i've written where an editor went no do it this way and it's just like no (laughs) i'll do it because you know you're the boss but 
you know, man, that just is painfully, painfully obviously does not work. But, you know, you're the one signing off on my checks. So. Yeah, that, it's still got to be pretty grating when, when somebody's telling you how to do your job. Well, you know, I mean, it's weird because, you know, the, the editor's job is to tell the, the creators how to do Well, maybe not. You know, I, my philosophy was hire the best person for the job and then get out of their way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't hire John Byrne to do Wonder Woman so I could tell John how to do Wonder Woman. John doesn't need me to tell him how to do Wonder Woman. <laughs> you know, he's just, he's going to do it. You know, he knows what he's doing. Or if he runs into a problem, if he's having a, you know, a plotting issue or, 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 you know, needs to know if he can use this character or that character, you know, and I'll run interference for him, you know, if, if, if there's uh, some problem. But, you know, I, I'm not there to tell him what to do. I'm there to, to facilitate him doing his best work because his best work is going to be what's best for the book. So um, getting kind of into things that you have worked on that are, are kind of in the zeitgeist right now in, in larger popular media. Yeah. Doom Patrol. Right. Yeah. Have you been have you been watching that show at all? I I saw most of the first season. Just got into it, and I, I did not I did not know what to expect. I haven't been a huge fan of this stuff on CW. Like to be yeah. honest, I, I saw a few episodes of the CW shows and just kind of checked out. Well, you know why it doesn't work for you? Because it's, it's not for me. The, not the way 13, I see it, not a thirteen year old girl. Exactly. Exactly. Doom Patrol, though, oh my goodness, that yeah. show is bonkers, and I'll, I've really enjoyed it. Yes, I, I thought it was it was excellently done. I, I thought it was one of the better, you know, one of the better TV comic book shows. And you know, my involvement with the characters, notwithstanding, because you know it's mostly Grant's Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol, although my characters do make appearances, which is you know nice and. You know, involves royalties, which is even nicer. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but, yeah, no, it's great. You know, and, and I want, you know, it's so, it's like I want to like this stuff. You know, could, look, I grew, when, when I grew up in the 1960s, so, you know, the, the nadir of superhero TV shows was Batman 1960s. Okay? That was like, you know, we had Adventures of Superman, which was, you know, my 104-episode Bible for life. And then we had Batman, you know, with Adam West. So the thought of living in this cornucopia of, you know, of superhero live action, you know, back then would have just, you know, made my head explode. But by the time it finally showed up, I'm way past the audience. You know, it's like, I, I can't, I can't watch Flash very long, you know, without going, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Um, or, or, you know, my, my complaint about all of these shows is human beings don't speak that way. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's just, you know, I'm, uh, it's not for me, you know, it looks great. And, and I got to admit, you know, like in, in, when the flash was first on, there was that, they did the uh, flash of two worlds, you know, where the, where Jay Garrick's comes skidding out of the, 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 the warp onto the floor and it's like, you know, and I squealed like a little girl because <laughs> was, oh, well, Flash of Two Worlds is, is a seminal story for me. 
because in flash well, 123, you know, July, uh, no, September 1961. And in it, it's the first time the new flash, the Barry Allen flash, acknowledges the existence of the Golden Age Flash beyond yeah. the comic book character. So Flash goes across the bridge to Keystone City and he stops at the newsstand and he picks up the newspaper to look to find out the date and where he is. And he goes, oh, my God, I'm in Keystone City. But that disappeared, you know, 10 years ago. But the date on the newspaper is June 14th, 1961. And June 14th is my birthday. So when I first read that story in a, in a reprint in an annual, I guess, 1965, it was like, oh, my God, that's my birthday. <laughs> this thing happened in my, on my birthday. And then as the 60s progressed and the whole, you know, Earth 1, Earth 2 thing, you know, because, you know, now you're looking back at, the, at Earth 1 and Earth 2 as history. But, you know, that was just evolving when I was reading comic books. You know, that, that whole Justice League, you know, 21 and 22, the, the crossover crisis on infinite, you know, on Earth 1 and Earth 2. You know, that was a brand new story for me. <laughs> so all this stuff was, was just like amazing and eye-opening. And, and, you know, it all started on my birthday. So I love that. You know, I love that, 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 that moment. And, and, you know, I also got to meet, to meet Wesley Ship. Oh, played, cool. Yeah. At a convention and, and, you know, and, and he's cool. He's a nice guy and, and, you know, he's really into it and he, and he's been into the character for years. And, and I told him that story and he was just like, there was almost tears in his eyes. You know, it was just like, he thought that was just so great, you know? And then I grew up and I got to be the editor of the flash, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. so you, you write a ton, you have a ton of stuff going on creatively. You're all over the place. What do you do to recharge? I'm knocking shit down. Sorry. <laughs> what, what do you do to recharge to, to kind of get back to where you can create? Cause you can't, you, you can't not take a break and, and I take a break. I mean, you know, I do what everybody else does. I watch TV, I read, you know, not a lot of places to go these days, but you know, I get out, I, I, I take a drive or, or, you know, I just, like to get in the car and, you know, listen to music or podcasts or something and not think too much for a few hours a day if I can or, or, or you know. But, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's kind of the – there's almost like a nonstop, you know, voice in my head that I'm always writing something, you know. Even when I'm not thinking about it, there's, you know, the little voice babbling in the back of my head going, yeah, this story is going, you got to do this, you got to write this, you got to – so, you know, and I'm on medication for it and I hope to feel better soon. <laughs> no, it's just, you know, it's just, I really do have this narrative voice that constantly runs in my head. And, you know, so kind of not writing, you know, and, or even t- like, I haven't been very productive in the last, last week or so, the whole, you know, election thing. Uh, yeah. I don't know if anybody has. <laughs> But, you know, but part of me is just like I'm sitting there and I'll stare at the screen and I'll get a few sentences out there on the page just because, you know, just, you know, shut them up for a few minutes and, and get something on paper. So, you know, it's just it's what I do. It's, it's what I've been doing, you know, all my life. You know, I, I started writing and drawing my own comics when I'm, you know, seven, eight years old. And, you know, I've had a, a, a pencil or a pen or a, 
typewriter or a, a, a you know a word processor under my fingers ever since. That's 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 amazing. Uh, I yes. not many people. I'm sorry. It's exhausting. I bet. <laughs> so where where will people be able to get your the I, I don't write for money? Oh well, that we just finished the Kickstarter, and that will be in print in 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 the next month or so. So that'll be available on on Amazon as well. Okay. And again, there's also uh, Paul Kupperberg's Illustrated Guide to Writing Comics. And we'll put links to that in the show notes, and and hopefully we'll be able to put the link to the I Never Write for Money if if that's on Amazon by then. And there's also my novel, uh, The Same Old Story, which is also available on on Amazon. It's a detective murder mystery set in the 1950s in the comic book industry. And in fact, the the murder victim is is uh, is a thinly disguised Bob Kanigan. So. Oh wow! <laughs> what 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 made you decide to set it set it in in that time? Well, I had the the idea for this uh, writer who who wrote these pulp stories about his old man who who had been a homicide detective, and you know, so I needed it to be kind of right around the time of the at the end of the pulp era, so we had a reason to cross from writing pulps into writing comic books, and just you know, again, I, I thought it was a fascinating error of, of the his, of, of the business. And, and in fact, Julie Schwartz, who I originally wrote as a, ca- you know, a cameo scene for, he kind of wound up returning a few times and, you know, becoming almost a Watson to my character's homes, you know, because oh, cool. uh, Schwartz, you know, would tend to take over and, and, you know, tell you how to plot your story. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was just, you know, it was a great time, interesting time. The business was going through a lot of changes and, you know, the story just seemed to work there. Plus, you know, I thought writing a murder mystery in an era, you know, in modern day when there's like cell phones and stuff, much more, much too complicated. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's actually a, a podcast devoted to basically inserting the idea that this movie right here, the entire plot to this movie would yeah. Be nothing because cell phones exist instead of you know having to have a whole to do about something you just call that person and say right. hey and then it's done <laughs> yeah exactly. so yeah um and then i've got coming up it's it's with the book designer now and will be available on amazon probably in a, within the month or so the novel jsa ragnarok oh cool which was a Justice Society of America novel I wrote about 15 years ago, which wound up never being published due to all kinds of legal and stuff, you know, the bankruptcy on, on the part of the publisher and then the book being tied up in all kinds of uh, stuff. But anyway, it's finally, uh, I'm finally self-publishing it through Crazy 8 Press, which is a, a little publishing hub I'm involved with, with Peter David and Bob Greenberger and Michael Jan Friedman and a bunch of other writers. And yeah, that'll also be available on, 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 on Amazon. That, that's awesome. We'll, we'll try to put some, some of those links in the show notes when this cool. goes up and man, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. I had a blast talking to you. And if you ever have anything else you want to come on and talk about, by all means, man, give us a, give us a shout out. And uh, we'll do. also, by the way, my wife just messaged me. Georgia is tied. Yes. I know. So <laughs> Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We, she's been watching it like a hawk and like all day at work today. I, uh, I weld 
for a living. So I can't, Yeah, I, I do laser micro welds. So I'm looking through a microscope. I can't really get to my phone. <laughs> yeah, and, you're better off. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, I zap something and, and fry some some electronics, and then yeah. that's you know forty thousand dollars worth of equipment. But anyway, I, I was trying to very carefully keep my eye on what's going on today, and it's just like holy shit, this is a roller coaster. Yeah. So uh, well, it, anyway, anyway, Paul Kupperberg, thank you so much for coming on. It, it's been a blast talking to you. It's been fun. Thanks a lot. All right. Have have a good evening. All right. All right. Goodbye. And we're back. That's right. We are back. Back in the saddle again. Well, (laughs) I hope you guys really, really enjoyed that as much as we did making it for you. And if you like what you heard, you want to hear more got to go check out spoilerverse.com because at spoilerverse.com we have a plethora plethora is such a it's such a snobbish word i like it though <laughs> it's, it's a good word <laughs> we have an obscene amount of oh, interviews obscene. with amazing directors and artists of all walks of life and editors and writers and oh my god are you a lover of comic books like we are and then there's so many. so many amazing people from the comic book world over at spoilerverse.com. And I highly implore you to go there and check it out. Yeah, and while you're there, you can check out all the other podcasts on our network, like Bridges and Geekdoms and Funny Book Forensics and Haphazard Adventures and Nerds in the Crypt and so many more. Misery Point Radio. episodes all the time. Misery Point Radio has got a ton of great stuff out there. Go check all of them out. And check out all of the reviews and previews and articles we have going up every single day for you. Every day on spoilerverse.com for you to check out, to read, and to love, and to like, and to comment. We have a store link. You want to help support the site? You can do it two ways. One, go to our Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash country, or go to our store link in the middle of the site there and get a t-shirt, a face mask, a hoodie, something. Look fly as hell and help support the site when you do that because we get a dollar or two. And, you know, maybe you want to talk to us. If you do, you can do it obviously on all the socials, but if you go to scpod.us slash discord, you can join our public discord server and come chat with us all day long. I couldn't say it better myself, dude. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You just mouthed out a ton of information at once. And really, <laughs> I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing because we're, we're working our butts off to bring it to you. We are. We are. I guess there's only one left thing. One left thing? Yeah. I'm going to go with it. There's only one left thing left to do. What's that? In an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do. Open the mind. And... Even more.